when the mention of a resume arises, um, plenty of memories probably pop into your head. You might think back to when you were first looking for a job when you were younger, or maybe you had to look for a job more recently and thought about a resume then. Um, my mind thinks back to my sophomore year where I first started putting thought into a resume as I applied for an internship with the Wichita Public School System. Whatever your experience was, you probably weren't quite sure exactly what the company that you were applying for wanted. So you probably sought out um, advice from somebody, uh, asked a mentor to help you draft a resume that might appeal to whatever criteria you were hoping to meet. Um, you finished it, probably. I would assume you didn't walk away. You finished it, you gave it, you got the job, or you didn't. Now it's over and it matters a whole lot less than it did at the time. Um, this past fall, I was talking with a few friends who were in the room, but I won't name names. Uh, and we were discussing how long a resume should be. And as a sophomore, I was taught by these people who it is their job to teach people how to write a resume, that you put one page on your resume and everything should be there at a glance and it shouldn't be missed. So you prioritize and put everything in that one spot. My friends, who I again will not name, <laughs> disagreed with me and they said, well, maybe you should think about doing two or three. It's funny because he's smiling. Uh, <laughs> they said two or three because if you only have one, you obviously aren't qualified enough for the position. If you've got one, it's like, well, you're good, but if you had two or three, you'd have a lot more experience and we'd look at hiring you. Um, like in any good disagreement, and we won't call it an argument, but in any good disagreement, the only way that it could be settled was using Google. Uh, so we did it. And what we discovered was affirming to my friends, and I had to concede <laughs> defeat. Uh, Forbes magazine puts it this way. The truth is we've been conditioned by the old school tradition of the one-page resume. The current digital age, where resumes aren't always submitted on paper anyway, has blazed a trail of new opinions. So I had to fess up and say, well, one page is fine, but so are two or three pages. My, my perspective on the matter had to shift. Um, there are plenty of counter arguments that I could have brought back toward my friends, um, but that's all right, and I'd waste a bunch of your time if I brought those up, so we'll leave it there. Um, but simply put, it's difficult to agree on what qualifications are necessary for getting a job. Uh, whether it's one page or three pages or five. Uh, it's difficult to agree. So we're going to set that resume aside. We're done with that for now. But it's going to guide kind of as we talk through the rest of 1 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, I apologize. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 12 to an issue that resembles this discussion that my friends and I had quite a bit. Although instead of a job application, he speaks about the spiritual influence that we can have and what qualifies us for that spiritual influence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about what boasting should look like and what our spiritual qualifications actually are. And then he also goes ahead and clarifies what place our boasting occupies, along with showing us what our boast isn't and then finishing with what our boast is. So we're going to look at what that looks like beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, 
was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For, I do not, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. When I first read this passage, my mind immediately jumped to a couple of things. The first was this out-of-body experience, or in the body, or out of the body, and Paul won't say. Um, and then to the thorn in the flesh. And as I reflected on it more and read it more, I'm glad that I did that. Um, because I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see what Paul's comments fall within, and not so much what our minds jump to. So we're going to look a little deeper than just those couple of things. Um, this passage directly connects with the context of what Ben's been talking about before regarding teachers who've come to Corinth boasting about their spiritual qualifications. These false teachers claim this special commendation, this um, I'm something unique, you need my opinion and my advice and my teaching. Um, and this is largely connected to their experiences and what they claim to be a unique standing before God. I'm going to go a little out of order because verses 11 through 13 really give us the clearest picture of how our text relates to what Ben's been talking about and what's come before this. Um, it kind of finishes a discussion about false teachers that started back in chapter 11 and is going to continue into next week as we finish this chapter. So we're going to start there and then we'll backtrack to Paul's key ideas in just a bit. The first thing that we'll determine, and I hope that you recognize, about boasting is that, that it has a place. Paul acknowledges that he has become foolish by boasting about his experiences. In verse 11, he points out that I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So then, why does Paul do this? If he says it's foolish, why would he do it? Why would he lead himself to engage in something that he calls unprofitable at the beginning of our chapter? Ben's called this functional foolishness in the last couple of weeks. And basically, Paul is using foolishness to achieve a particular function. So what exactly is Paul's function in going to this extent? Um, Proverbs speaks a lot on the topics of wisdom and folly. In particular, Proverbs 26, 4 through 5, 
mention how to address a foolish person. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. The best way that I can think of how this looks is when I think of my students. Um, I teach middle school and I work with really great kids every day, really needy kids, but excellent kids. Um, and despite what I see in them that is good, um, at one point or another, whether it be talking with other teachers or thinking to myself, um, we will sometimes describe one or more of the students as acting the fool. Um, whenever that arises, there are a couple of ways that I can respond to my student. Um, the first way is I could act irrationally and focus on responding to the extent of what they give me. So as they raise their voice at me, I can raise my voice back at them. And that's an option. I can do it, and I've done it. Okay? Uh, another way is I could return their excuses with my own excuses. Mr. Belson, why did, you, why did you pick me? I wasn't the only one talking. Well, you're the one that I caught, and I said the next person that talked. And I could respond with their excuses. I could return and mimic their behavior. The second uh, and better way that actually can help uh, the second way is I could respond by speaking calmly and encouraging my students to see their behavior in a different light. By allowing myself to, to understand their foolishness as opposed to just condemn their foolishness, I'm able to recognize its effect and hopefully actually change their behavior instead of allowing it to continue. Paul's goal here in this passage really aligns with the second option helping them to understand their foolishness um, as a result of him getting on their level. He wants to connect with the Corinthians who wandered into foolishness and recognize that boasting is what they want to hear. They've become conditioned to hearing qualifications and ignoring truth, and Paul really intends to use his qualifications to communicate truth. Knowing that there is indeed a place for boasting, there comes the question, what should it look like? So if we know boasting can be there and it is functionally okay and it has a purpose, um, Paul begins the chapter by explaining first what it shouldn't look like. So we're gonna go there next. Simply put, our boasting shouldn't be rooted in our experience like these false teachers have claimed. Paul begins the chapter in verse two with visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul puts his very best foot forward here. He's bringing in evidence that really, truly could wipe out everything these super, super apostles are claiming, they're claiming this special, unique relationship with the Lord, and Paul could wipe that out. Um, the experience that Paul refers to is unfathomable. Was it Paul that experienced it, or was it his friend? Uh, he doesn't tell us, and he says it twice, and doesn't tell us either time. Was it a real experience, or was it a vision? He again doesn't tell us. Um, there are a lot of opinions on this, but Paul isn't going to base his boast on this. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here because Paul didn't. We're going to focus on what he chooses to later on in this discussion. But why 
would he bring it up? If it's not important, why would he bring it up? And it's because it is important. By bringing it up, Paul shows that his experiences, at the very least, compare with what these false or super apostles are claiming. And he knows that he is not inferior to them and says so earlier in chapters 11 along with here in 12. More likely, Paul's revelation is superior to any of theirs. And yet Paul goes on to reduce its impact on his merit. He's going to say that this really has nothing to do with my spiritual qualifications. He continues in verse 5 to say, On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I can't boast. I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me, or hears from me. We often, and, and specifically I know I often, make the mistake of believing that my experiences qualify me in God's eyes. It's not surprising because these things that we do can make us really impressive to other people. They look at us and say, wow, that person must be hearing from God. Um, I often fall into this kind of thinking. I want others to see how great I am, to recognize my holiness and commitment to the Lord's work, I can honestly say that I've gone on missions trips, participated in outreach opportunities, and even attended Christian conferences for this very reason, so that people could see. And I think to myself, watch till they see how holy I am. I'll get all sorts of attention and that'll bring glory to God, right? Uh, wrong, and dead wrong. So if it's not my experiences that vouch for me, what is it? Paul emphasizes how unimportant it is that any of this revelation and vision may have happened. None of what I did was awful. Those things like going to on a missions trip was not awful in and of itself, but I could sure use this pointer from Paul. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul understood the same thing that God spoke to Samuel as he looked for a new king for Israel. 1 Samuel 16, 7 is about as clear as it gets when it says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, in our example, experience or potential. But the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel goes on to find that David, the smallest and most visibly, very apparently unimpressive of his host of seven older brothers, is the exact one that God has chosen to be king over his people. God chose David because of the state of his heart. His frailty, his weakness, his littleness, allowed him to be used for God's purposes in a way that others could not. Knowing that our experiences don't provide merit before God, and then instead a right heart does, let's move forward and see how Paul suggests that we might actually find our true boast. In verses 7 to 10, Paul gives a very clear message that our boast must only rely on God's work in our lives. He, came, he claims that God's grace is sufficient for our needs. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, these ones that he talked about at the beginning of the chapter, for this very reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. When most people read this passage, they are really intrigued by this thorn in the flesh, like what we mentioned earlier, um, from Satan that Paul speaks of. And again, many people discuss and even debate this, what this thorn was. A couple of options. Some people believe that this was a physical illness that actually affected Paul's functioning. Other people claim that it was a demonized person 
who antagonized Paul's message in his ministry and kept annoying him and annoying him to the point where he didn't feel he could speak in front of anybody. Um, and this may be a little simplistic of me, but I think that if Paul wanted us to focus on the thorn, he would have probably told us what it was. Um, and he doesn't. Um, but if he, if he did, if he wanted us to know about it, he would have written how we too could get our own thorn and maybe even told us how in six easy payments of 1995, <laughs> you too could have your own thorn. Uh, I'm reminded of a YouTube video uh, that I was talking about this weekend with a friend, and it's this wife and her husband or girlfriend and, and boyfriend who are talking, and she has a nail in the center of her head, and, and he's trying to describe to her that if he could just pull out the nail, her problems might be, be gone, and she, she's describing, no, but there's all this pain and all of this stuff going on, um, and at the end she concludes with, it's not about the nail, and in this case it's not about the thorn, Okay. Um, the thorn really, and Paul's idea here, is that we're uncomfortable with weakness. We don't like it. We ask for it to be taken away and then wait until God says, okay, we're done. And that, that point is when we feel like we can be comfortable again. Um, even Jesus shows an example of this when he pleaded with God shortly before his death. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He knew that in just a few hours he was going to be arrested, that they uh, put him before Pontius Pilate, that the people would call out that he be killed. He knew that he was going to suffer death on the cross and that he was going to bear all of God's wrath against sinful man. Christ knew weakness, and how he concludes his prayer also shows how he knew its value. By requesting that the Lord's will be done, he recognized the true power that would arise from his ultimate action of weakness. Paul realized Christ's work as he penned verse 9. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul goes from being very uncomfortable with weakness and then completely shifts to it being exactly what he's boasting in. Without weakness, we couldn't have been saved. If Christ had not become weak, we wouldn't have a way to the Father. Our sin would doom us to eternal death, and if we don't acknowledge our own weakness, we can't experience the power of Christ's redeeming work done on the cross. We are dependent, fully dependent, on this work. Salvation is not found in our good works, so why would our merit be found there either? The grace shown by Paul, or by Christ toward Paul, is his strength. Is it yours? He goes on to conclude in verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if I'm not wrong, he just said that weakness equals strength. Which makes my mind, every time I, I read this, makes my mind scream, that's a paradox. And then I remember, I have no idea what a paradox means, but I know one when I see one. And so then I looked it up, and Webster's Dictionary defines it as a statement that is seemingly contradictory, contradictory 
or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. But in my mind, negative is not the same thing as positive. PlayStation is not the same thing as Xbox. Weakness cannot equal strength. Unless that weakness is our own recognition of our need for Christ's strength, we too could be content with our circumstances. In this case, it's not only perhaps true, it's absolutely true. Um, as being part of, or as being a teacher, I've gotten the chance to attend some trainings. And one thing that you feel like when you are a teacher is that you can always be getting better. And that's a great thing about teaching because you're always growing and you're learning new things. And as part of that, I'm encouraged to attend trainings every summer. And so all the kids are like, yes, school is over. And then the very next day, I do an optional training. Um, but at these trainings, um, one of them is, is through a program called AVID. And AVID aims to provide all students with skills to be successful both in college and in their future careers. Um, I've been able to attend a summer session in Dallas, Texas twice. And the highlight of that summer session is the chance to hear different students speak about how that program and their experiences with this AVID organization has helped them overcome obstacles along their educational journey. As part of this, um, I want to say it was three years ago, I got to hear a young woman named Keely. Um, she had just graduated. She began her speech with a story of how her world fell apart. Her mother was plagued with cancer for many years and passed away when she was just 11. As her voice quaked with each cheerful description, I saw someone who was at this moment ultimately weak, um, at her very lowest point. And yet the 5,000 other teachers in the room and myself all knew that this was one of the strongest people that we'd ever encountered. Um, she finished uh, and went on to summarize her experience in, in this way. Um, everyone faces adversity, and it's the choices you make within that moment that reflect the life you've lived. She wasn't talking about where we stand with God. I have no reason to believe that she was um, a Christian. But how true is that for helping us understand anyway? We're all weak. We possess nothing that allows us to stand. As I get up here and speak, I'm reminded I have nothing to give. I can't convince you of anything. Um, I can't organize thoughts on my own. We're all weak. So what choice will I make in this moment? Will you make in that moment when you're weak? Will you continue to grasp at the good that you hope to portray to others and put on a face? Or will you fall on the grace of God found only in a recognition of your own weakness? So what do we take away from Paul's discussion on boasting? How can it influence the way that we understand God and how we present ourselves before men? The first way that I encourage you is to recognize that Christianity is not about keeping up appearances. Our identity, is, our identity in Christ is, rooted in our ex, is not rooted in our experience or our list of spiritual expertise, but rather it is rooted in our weakness. It's easy to look at Christians who speak of their blessing from God and immediately see their perfect job, their beautiful family, their balanced budget, thanks to Dave Ramsey, weekly Bible study, and daily devotional time. Whether these are on display innocently or if there's um, false advertising going on, our blessing doesn't lie here in those things. 
Our power is found entirely in the sacrificial work of Christ to redeem those who are weak. Don't be fooled by appearances, but be convinced by the work of Christ. Will you rest in your weakness on a God who is strong? When you're able to rest in God's strength and not your own, your quiet times can be more profitable than they were before. Instead of looking to show your faithfulness off, I've read 27 days in a row. You might actually hear from God and be transformed by how he renews your mind. Tough situations in your work or family become not so much a burden as an opportunity to see God grow through the grow you through the difficulty. A balanced budget becomes less of an achieve this point, invest this much by this age, and you've got it, and your finances can instead become just a reflection of how you invest in what is important to God. How neat would it be to take some of the very areas that can completely stress us out and see God use them to grow us in his plan? The second thing I'd like you to think about is how have you allowed your merit to either qualify you or disqualify you from following God? Are you a bit like me in thinking that because I grew up in a God-fearing family and my dad was a pastor and I went to church every Sunday morning, evening, and for a one on Wednesday and I'm serving at a Bible camp this summer that somehow I'm more powerful and capable of proclaiming Christ? Um, or do you kind of go the other direction where I find myself on other occasions saying, I haven't been walking with Christ as long as they have. I don't understand the Bible as well as they do. They get something special and I just don't get it. I'm not really sharing my faith the way that others do. Todd's story was great, but I just am not Todd. And you find yourself beating yourself up about your experiences or your lack thereof of experiences. In both of these examples, the statements are true. My father was a pastor. That's true. Um, but our strength in Christ is not found in our experience. It's found in our acknowledgement of our own ultimate weakness. And when we get to this point of weakness, we're able to see the grace of God, which came at the very right time to save us. Have you found yourself abandoning the true gospel of God's grace for the lie of your own self-worth? Final aspect I want you to think about for today is how can you boast in your weakness? There are some instances where we're actually weak, um, but in other instances, it's perceived. I believe this about myself that I'm weak. But in either case, um, what areas do you feel weak in? Whether perceived or actual, what areas are you weak in? Sometimes we feel, um, as an example, we feel uncertain in how to participate in the church body. Knowing that we're a small church, some of you are undoubtedly serving in ways that stretch you. You're helping a children's church and you're not really much of a kid person. Or I've, I've gotten you assigned to our sound team, and maybe you've never done sound in your life before. Um, it stretches us. But trust in God's grace to make you adequate for whatever your task. Know that any difficulty you face just further reveals God go God's goodness toward us because his power is perfected in our weakness. Do you struggle to find meaningful relationships? And maybe you often feel helpless in that area. It can certainly lead to worry, anxiety, and even anger. Or it could lead to further dependence on the Lord to provide as he has through salvation. His power is perfected in our weakness. 
The more that we realize we don't have control, the more we recognize that God does. When we feel self-confident, we undermine the need for God and lessen the impact of his gift of grace. So I asked you to put aside the resume, and now we're going to bring it back. Um, what does your spiritual resume look like? Do you go with a lengthy two- to three-page resume that lists every single thing you've done for the Lord? Um, or maybe instead, do you find yourself struggling to come up with enough to fill one page? I'd venture to say that whatever one fits you is irrelevant. Um, what matters is, what did you include? Your spiritual standing does not depend on commendations that impress men. A student taught at this school, and I worked with this teacher, and all of these things are irrelevant. Your spiritual standing falls entirely on your recognition of your own weakness and Christ's ability to turn that weakness into something beautiful. Your only commendation comes from the Lord, and I'd make sure if one thing stands out on your resume, I'd be sure that was it. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we come before you in a world that is all about comparisons. Lord, and I confess that my mind often wanders here too. Lord, help me, help us to recognize that we have no list of things that qualify us, um, that our salvation only relies and rests on your strength, which you showed through Christ Jesus. Help us to boast in our weakness as we see your power working in us. As we take time to reflect on your grace, Lord, show us ways that we act as though your grace isn't enough because we claim our own strength.